My name is Michael Hall. I'm an executive editor at Texas Monthly Magazine. And um, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm going to welcome you all to one-on-one -on -one with the Court of Criminal Appeals, which <laughs> should be one-on-five with the Court of Criminal Appeals. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think we can still make this, this happen. This is going to be great. We're going to talk about the state's <clears throat> highest criminal court. We're going to talk about the past, the present, and the future. I'm going to introduce the panel here. Over here on my left, Elsa Alcala. She was appointed to the court in 2011. Previously, she served nine years as a justice on the state's first court of appeals, presiding over criminal and civil cases. Before becoming a judge, Alcala spent nine years working as an assistant mm -hmm. district attorney, uh, serving under Harris County DA Johnny Holmes. Next, we have Cheryl Johnson. She was elected in 1998. She's a member of the College of the State Bar of Texas. She previously served on the board of directors at the Austin Criminal Defense Lawyers Association and on the Community Justice Council's <coughs> Committee on Offenders with Mental Impairments. To my right is Kevin Yeary. These three guys, these are the new guys on the court. They were all elected in uh, 2014. Previously, uh, Judge Yeary worked as a briefing attorney for Texas Judge Bill White, as an adjunct professor at San Antonio College, and as an assistant district attorney in Bayer, Harris, and Dallas counties. He's argued cases before both the CCA and the Texas uh, Supreme Court. Uh, David Newell was elected in 2014. He previously served as an assistant professor in Harris County District Attorney's Office, and in the past he's argued before the Court of Criminal Appeals and the Texas Supreme Court. He's also issued briefings for the U.S. Supreme Court. And on the end is Judge Richardson, Burt Richardson. Uh, previously he worked as an adjunct professor at St. Mary's University School of Law, also in San Antonio. He served 10 years as the judge of the 379th State District Court in Bear County, and in addition, he has served as an assistant U.S. attorney and as an assistant district attorney in Bear County. Um, so uh, we're going to, this will be seriously. about an hour today. We'll <coughs> save 15 or 20 minutes for questions on the, the, the tail end of it. Um, I want to remind everybody to silence your cell phones, if possible. And if you're going to tweet, and they would love it if you would tweet, uh, hashtag it TTF, the Texas Tribune Fest. Um, so let's, let's start off giving a little, little context for the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, it's uh, back in the 80s, I think that the, the court had a, had a reputation as being more of a pro-defense uh, court, sometimes as being a technicality-oriented court. In, in the famous Tracy G case, which was a Houston case, uh, the court uh, overturned a murder conviction because the jury had been shuffled uh, two times. Um, in the late 90s and aughts, the court got a different reputation. It's more of a state-oriented court. Um, I think probably the most famous example from that was the Roy Kreiner case in which the court overturned a trial court's order for a new trial for a man who had been essentially exonerated by DNA. Uh, uh, ever since then, it seems like the court has actually kind of moderated and found a middle ground. So I wanted to start off by talking with you guys with some of the, the people who've been on the court a little bit longer and the new guys, how do you see the court as it stands now? And why don't we start off with Judge Johnson because you've been there longer than anybody else. Uh, I think your summary is pretty accurate. Um, the moderate re uh, reputation in the early 21st century uh, was uh, in large part because of three judges who all retired last year. And so we have had a big shift in personnel. Uh, one third of the court changed in one year. 
Up to that point, uh, we had changed personnel once uh, in 2001, and uh, when, well, actually it was Charlie, you replaced Charlie, didn't you? Mm -hmm. So we had a, a judge that uh, aged out of the system, essentially, and uh, Elsa joined us in 2011. But up until that time, we had not had a change of personnel <clears throat> in more than 10 years. And you get to know people's uh, voting habits, um, their positions on issues, so that it's, maybe you don't like the results, but it's easier to, to wend your way down the path because you know who's going to be taking what position and to what extent. Um, it's going to be interesting because we have changed one third of the court already and uh, I'm retiring at the end of next year and I think Larry Myers is also retiring. So in a, you know, two years and one day, more than half the court will be new. Uh, at this point, uh, the three new judges have been on the court less than a year. We don't know what their voting patterns are going to be yet. <laughs> um, if, if you go on background, um, there are two career prosecutors and a judge who has been a prosecutor for a number of years. And at this point, I'm the only person on the court who spent any significant time on the other side as a defense counsel. So it, it will just take time to know whether that moderate <clears throat> reputation will continue or whether it will shift back toward being state-oriented. Judge Alcala, what, what do you think? I mean, you've been there for four years now. Uh, I think we don't know, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, and to, just to give a couple of examples, in 2014, uh, I was on the court, and we decided a case called Villarreal, where we said that you have to have a warrant uh, before you can draw blood. And, in most cases, in DWI situations. Uh, we have another case called Robbins, where um, a doctor changed her testimony, and he's claiming that he should get relief based on the, the, the revised science. And again, in 2014, we granted relief. Um, but as, as soon as the three new judges got on the court, motions for rehearing were filed, and they granted motions for rehearings in those cases, and those cases remain pending. So we don't know. It, uh, it could be that they granted rehearing because they were brand new on the court and they wanted to study the issues, and then perhaps they'll come to the same decision as the court did in 2014. Or it could be that they granted rehearing because they want to change those results in favor of the state. And those cases are pending, and we just don't know. And I think those decisions are going to perhaps signify where the court will be going. I think in the next few months, we're going to see some decisions come down, and I think that the public will be able to sense whether this is going to remain a moderate court, so to speak, or whether it is now going to become uh, one that favors the state in most cases. So time will tell. <clears throat> well, I wonder who we could ask over here to see uh, what you all <laughs> think about this. Uh, actually, I, had, I, I, would, I, would, I've, uh, I would agree with both uh, Judge Johnson and Judge Alcala that we don't know yet. The joke that I use when I've, I've done the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals update is that right now we're kind of a Frankenstein court. Like, we, are, we still have these cases that are sort of pending over from the previous uh, makeup of the court, but we also have a lot of new blood. Um, the, other, the other observation I might make, though, is, is that you can't count out 
the, 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 the times at which those courts developed those repu reputations. Uh, it wasn't just the court necessarily driving those things. They were also a reflection of the attitudes sure. of that time. Um, you and got political parties. And, and political <laughs> parties, that's right. And, and I think that you have to look at whether or not you see the momentum, where, where you see the, the political momentum and the social and, uh, momentum going to see uh, whether the court's really going to be a reflection of that. And I think that that could be an indication of where you might see the court going, is they might stay with that momentum. But yeah. I, I don't want to take away from the fact that I know that um, one thing that has impressed me about being on the court is that everyone comes, comes to these questions from a very principled place. They really are not trying to, they're really trying to do what they think the right thing is. And they're trying to take a stand what they think the law says. And that's really it. They're trying to resolve the case that's in front of them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Y'all? Well, I would say, you know, it was interesting. You, you couched the, the beginning of this discussion in terms of what's the reputation of the court. And, you know, I really hope that, that we're not, as a court, going to be overly concerned about what our reputation is and that we'll be much more concerned about what the law is and whether or not we're getting the law and construing it the right way. I think that, you know, people are going to be happy or unhappy with what we do many times because of things that don't have anything to do with the law at all. And it might be because, you know, they, for example, the perceptions, the perception that we might be favoring the state. Um, I certainly, you know, Judge Johnson points out that, that she has the most experience as a criminal defense attorney, but I know as I was kind of looking through the numbers at one point, and, and it seemed to me that there are five of us at least who've had some experience in, in criminal defense, including myself, including Judge Hervey, including Judge Keller, including Judge Myers, now, we haven't had Judge, Judge Johnson's sort of lifetime career, but we also have experience working on both sides of these issues. And so I think my perception is, is that the court works really hard, and we do disagree. Uh, when we go to conference, it's, it's sometimes, you know, we work through things, and it's hard because we don't see things the same way. But, but I think we're all trying to do the best we can to get the right answer. Yeah, so... You want to say anything? I agree with the two ladies. <laughs> um, and, and well, I, well said, well spoken. Just throw that out there. Well said. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I think the next election cycle will really give us a real clear picture of which way the court is headed, mm -hmm. um, given those who are retiring or may retire, and, and, and probably in the next six months. Um, Judge Ockla mentioned two of the big cases that are still pending before the court. And, and, and I agree with uh, Kevin or Judge Uri that we all strive to do what we think is right. We, we go to conference and there's always uh, vigorous debates about which way we should decide certain cases. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that is just dependent on our backgrounds, where we come from, um, what types of cases we've seen, where we've practiced, and I'm just glad to be here. Yeah. It also depends, unfortunately, in large part what the legislature wrote. And they do not seem to understand the importance of punctuation. <laughs> and that where you put the commas and the semicolons will change the meaning of the statute. Right. And sometimes we just don't know what they intended. And that's when it gets very rocky, because we do not know what it means on its plain meaning by its own words. And then we get interpretations, and often they can but grammar not grammar saves lives. Are you talking about a particular <laughs> uh, statute? Or? Oh, they come up now and then. Uh -huh. I, I can't call one to mind right now. Maybe 
somebody who actually hasn't slept lately uh, will do that. But um, well, it's interesting because the Robbins case was actually. Uh, an example of how the court and the legislature actually, I don't know if it's hand in hand, but work off mm -hmm. of each other. And so, you know, the, the decision was made, I believe, in November 2014, and then mm -hmm. the legislature acted in response to some concerns, I think, from some of the judges on the court, and then you all had the rehearing. So there's like this kind of back and forth yeah. between, right. uh, between judges and legislatures, which is a good thing. And the same is true for the DNA statute. We yeah decided a case, and then in Swearingen, we made a decision, and then they somewhat reacted mm -hmm. to that decision, yeah. and then we have Swearingen again before us in this new procedural posture. So you see that quite a bit yeah. where we make a decision, legislature changes the law to mm -hmm. adapt to what we said, right. and then they have a new filing, and then we've got to figure out whether relief comes under the new statute or whether we're still going to stick with what we said before. Mm -hmm. So it happens, it seems, yeah. over and over again. And what, that can lead into the next thing, which is, you know, Texas has really been leading the way in a lot of criminal justice reforms. I mean, our, our, with our legislature, with the DNA statutes, that, going back to Chapter 64 back in 2001, which was the first post-conviction DNA testing statute, the Michael Morton Act with Open Discovery, the, the Tim Cole Act. Um, the, uh, the junk science writ from, so-called junk science writ from 2013, and then uh, the Forensic Science Commission itself, which uh, began in 2005 and has actually done a lot of really great stuff. But also, at the same time, you have Judge Hervey, who has the Criminal Justice Integrity Unit, which has just done you know, just some amazing things, bringing in all kinds of people from, from the, uh, the legal community, not just defense lawyers and prosecutors, but all judges and people to talk about these issues. Uh, uh, Judge Keller, too. I mean, there's been uh, a, a real sense that, uh, you know, we have some issues in the criminal justice system and let's, let's fix them now. I mean, I think maybe 20 years ago there wasn't that same kind of sense. Uh, and, you know, how, I mean, did that begin with, uh, with the DNA exonerations? I mean, how did, how, where did that whole idea come from, that, hey, we have some problems and we need to do something about it as judges? I think there were some cases that uh, kind of embarrassed the state generally. Um, when you have a large number of people who are exonerated uh, based on DNA, you can no longer credibly argue that uh, we don't make mistakes. Uh, we know that we do. Um, and I think that pushed, because if you get embarrassed, and we, our decisions regularly got slapped down by the United States Supreme Court, uh, particularly over the death penalty, and we've kind of um, gotten that procedure correctly. I think the, the prosecutors had to learn how to try it, the defense had to learn how to try it, the judges had to learn how to deal with it, um, but when you do get embarrassed, then you look for ways to stop being embarrassed again, and I think that has had some effect on the legislature. Um, the Martin case, uh, which resulted in a big piece of legislation, was such an embarrassment, um, and we were publicly hung out to dry coast to coast. So then the legislature is going to react. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say is when I was a baby prosecutor back in... Um, the distant past. Uh, no, no, yeah, 1989 is when I graduated from law school. It was 
really when DNA was starting. You know, people forget it didn't really exist <laughs> until around 1989. And even when it's, we started seeing it in courts, we didn't know what to do with it. We just thought, oh, it's just some, something we don't deal with, you know, that sort of thing. And, and in the nine years that I was at the DA's office, people started realizing, oh, DNA is something that's important to criminal courts. Same thing with shaken baby. When I was a prosecutor, I tried the shaken baby cases, and the medical examiner's testimony was that this is rock solid stuff, mm -hmm. that if you see these things in the eyes, that it absolutely means that the person shook the baby and that's how the baby died. Well, fast forward now, 20 years or so, and, and um, we now see changes. You know, back then, Again, if you had an eyewitness, you'd say, oh, I've got an eyewitness. It's a rock-solid case. And these days, if you have an eyewitness, you're looking for something to corroborate the eyewitness. Mm -hmm. So this is all changing <coughs> because of what we're learning, not necessarily because of, I think, changes in personalities. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a reaction to evolving science, evolving things that we know. And right. so I, that, I guess that's just my two cents, that I've sort of grown up with this system starting from eyewitnesses are gold and uh, that's all you need to now where maybe we trust circumstantial evidence perhaps even more than, than we might an, mm -hmm. an eyewitness. Yeah. So I think it's just been a, a, a change in the time. And we know a lot about DNA now. When I started <laughs> practicing law, the DNA profile was kind of looked like a smudged right. UPC. And now it is very precise and very clear. Uh, and the FBI is saying, well, this is how you calculate it. And you may be aware that they've backed off of that now. But they say, oh, it, that we, we were calculating it wrong, but it doesn't make much of a difference. And there's a Galveston DA who is now looking at a case that was a billion to one, it had to be him, and when they redid the calculations correctly in a mixed sample, it's now one in 38. A big difference between, you know, like nine digits and two digits. And that's going to cause an uproar in the DNA stuff, and we have a lot of that. Can I chime in? Please. Uh, it, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, when you talk about these issues, uh, we have to remember that our court is an issue court. I mean, we don't drive the issues. The issues come to us, and, and certainly we can pick and choose the ones that we think we want to uh, grant review of or file and set on. Uh, and I think we do that from a place of trying to guide the development of the law in the state, but we don't sort of sit around thinking, well, you know, what, what area of the law are we going to change today? The issues have to come, they percolate right. their way up to us. So as judges, again, what we do is we decide the issues that come to us. But I think a lot of credit needs to be given uh, to, to, for example, Judge Hervey on our court. You know, what she's done uh, with the Criminal Justice Integrity Unit and, and her Forensic Science Commission work is really commendable in the sense that it's sort of, it's outside the box from what you really think of when you think about what a judge does, the judge typically, you know, again, decides the issues that come before them, but judge, what Judge Hervey has done is sort of gotten outside of the box of our courtroom and brought together all the players to begin to kind of have them see what the issues are yeah. and work together <laughs> towards solutions that can make things better. 
I, I would I would agree with what Kevin says and, and what all the other judges have said as well. Uh, I just would add that I think that part of the thing that has, in addition to the changing science and what we've learned more, part of the thing that has driven this is very much the fact that we are an issue court. And so a lot of that has created the need for the interplay between this court and the legislature, this, this court, and outside organizations like the Criminal Justice Integrity Unit. Because we say, well, we can identify a problem, but our, our job is not to come up with the policy or, or sort of craft laws to sort of fix those problems. We can just highlight it. Right. And that has, to the credit of the legislature, has, has resulted in new legislation to address those problems. And um, to the extent that the legislature is unable to act, having a side organization like the Criminal Justice Integrity Unit do things, uh, sort of bring awareness and bring the stakeholders together, I think is very, very helpful. Yeah. But that's, that's the way I see it happening yeah. is, is yeah. that. And Judge Richardson, you've been a district judge, like a traveling judge, right? Yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, is it different yeah, now? I mean, the way you would see these issues out there and then coming into this place, which is, you know, the highest court, criminal court in the state. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I, <laughs> you know, for six years I, I, I worked in 50 counties. So I, I had, had the opportunity to see how different counties, smaller counties, larger counties deal with some of these issues. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> there was something said about Judge Herbie. I mean, she stepped out of her role as a judge because mm -hmm. the court is responsible. They have a budget for educating uh, practitioners and, and lawyers mm -hmm. across the state in the criminal justice field. And, and, and then you have some cases that make their way to our court, like the Michael Morton case, where you can actually put a face to problems. And you have somebody like Michael Morton who's willing to step up to the plate and say, a mistake was made. Um, <clears throat> let me be a face to this so corrections can be made. Right. And, <clears throat> and having worked in 50 counties, I, I can tell you that um, that education is still necessary. And <clears throat> not everybody gets it yet. Right. It's important to, to have those programs. Um, let's talk about the death penalty, because we have a lot of people coming here probably from out of state, and Texas, of course, has what a reputation, you know, as the, as the, the killer state. But one of the fascinating things about Texas right now is no Texas court has one. given the death penalty one, this year. One, I think last, one, week. last Wednesday. Last Wednesday? Brazos yep. County. Holy cow. One. It's the right. first one this year. All right. I'm going to push ahead anyway. <laughs> usually at this point, usually at this point, there are 11 or Shannon 21. Two. two. Um, Shan says two. Oh, Oops. great. So <laughs> this is all, this is all the, the, the speedy trial. <laughs> well, it's only right. two. All right. I'm going to push ahead still because basically the graph is still very low on this. Is, uh, is the death penalty basically, I mean, because we have the life without parole now, is the death penalty basically on the way out? It's hard to say in Texas. Right. Um, but I think up until about 2005, we were getting low 40s on new death sentences every year, 42, 44. And then in 2005, it plummeted to 22. And it's never been out of the teens since then. Uh, and one year we hit nine. Now, I think this year, no, there was one out of Brazos County. Shannon apparently knows about another one. But we have actually processed only one has come through our clerk's office this year. I think people are beginning to realize um, that we make mistakes. And if you execute someone, you can't let them out and give them $80,000 a year. You, you can't do that. And also, the death penalty is very expensive. When you put death on the table, the price of the initial trial triples. 
You have special qualifications and procedures for picking a jury. You have to provide extra resources to the defense. And the money just runs up. It's a whole lot cheaper to sentence him to life, uh, given the upkeep in our prison system per prisoner. It's much cheaper to stick him away for life than it is to try to kill him. And when the budget uh, gets tight, well, perhaps that's part of the choice. Mm -hmm. I was a prosecutor in Harris County again in the 90s, and I tried three death penalty cases. Um, and back then, I think there was a philosophy that, well, there's two things that were important. There was a philosophy by that elected DA that if you met the statutory criteria, that basically he would seek death and leave it up to a jury to decide whether to give it or not. That was one factor that led to a, a lot of um, right. prosecutions where the government sought death. And then the other important thing was, again, when I was a first a prosecutor, uh, parole meant 15 years, and then the person, the person would get convicted and get life, but life meant you were eligible for parole in 15 years. Well, if the jury knew you could get out in 15 years and you'd committed this horrible crime, I think that would factor into them choosing death mm -hmm. in order to ensure that the person would never get out. Well, then the legislature met, and I think it changed parole to 30 years, and then maybe the next legislative session it was, I think, 35, and then I think 40, 40. and then ultimately it became life without parole. And I think now that we have life without parole, jurors feel comfortable that this person's never going to get out. And so then death is um, um, not as important, I guess, as far as punishment, because there's a lot of people who believe sitting, spending your whole life in prison for, for the remainder of your life is worse punishment, <clears throat> perhaps, than even being executed. Uh, there were 12 appeals for death cases in 2014, and right now we only have, I guess, one or two people who have been sentenced to death, and it's October. So if, if your question is, it's a death penalty on the way out, I think the statistics would bear out that the answer is yes, but I do think that it will be, it, it's not going away in my mm -hmm. opinion. I think it will remain there for the extreme cases. Uh, I think for those cases, I, the government will still have mm -hmm. it available to pursue. And, I, and I, I, that's it, my opinion. I would, it might go away to... De facto, but not de jure. Well, yeah, like the, the, the option, just to build on what Judge Olga was saying, is that I, I think that there are two ways of looking. I'm looking at it just from the, the standpoint of the development of law from the Supreme Court of the United States. And I, and I think that there's two ways of looking at it. You could see that this, this momentum towards winnowing down these cases could be seen as a winding down, a ratcheting down of the community standards to suggest that it's not viable anymore. Winding down to the really terrible cases, right? Or just winding it down, saying it, it. You winding down the cases so that we just ultimately say there wouldn't be any death penalty. Or we shouldn't. It, it would violate the Eighth Amendment. I think that you could see. I think Judge Scalia, Justice Scalia, said in an interview that he thinks there are five votes on the court right now to do away with it. That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it, I, it, I think, is more aligned with what Judge Algola just said. Is is that there's a, if you look at these things, or take the the law is taking out c categories of people. Uh, to, to really narrow the focus so that we make sure that the people that, that are being executed are the worst of the worst. We're trying to make sure that when the death penalty is, is done, it is for really, really extreme cases. Um, that's another way of looking at it. Yeah. 
So. You guys both are kind of a little bit younger. You come up through the assistant district attorney ranks and all. I mean, do you all have a different attitude about the death penalty than than maybe some of the some of the the guys who've been around longer when it was when it was happening more? Uh, I I guess I would say that I have, as from my perspective, I I had a little bit of a luxury. I started out in Fort Bend actually, where they didn't try many death penalty cases, but they did do two. I worked on both of those cases. It was it was, and I saw the DA there really wrestled with whether it was the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. It was not just a, does this fit these things? Does this fit the statutory guidelines? It was, do we have the punishment? Is there no mitigation evidence that would suggest that he should be given life? And he really weighed those things very, very seriously. And so when I worked on those cases, it was not at all a situation that I felt that, that uh, you would have like a Michael Morton type circumstance. It was, there, there was not a real question of guilt at all. Uh, there was ample, uh, punishment evidence to suggest that this person was a future danger, but it was a it was not a it was definitely not a cavalier attitude mm -hmm. that, that I think people are accused prosecutors of having, and and, and I that has not been my experience that uh, that the death penalty is something that just is entered into lightly by the state. I would say uh, you know I've I've worked in three uh, DA's offices as an appellate lawyer. Uh, and in two of those offices, Harris County and Bear County, I worked on capital cases where the death penalty was involved. Uh, in, uh, in Bear County is the great majority of where I spent my time doing that. I was involved in a number of those cases. Uh, I, I don't have any great affinity for it. I, don't, I mean, killing people is not fun business. Mm -hmm. and, and I can tell you from a personal standpoint, uh, anytime I had a case that got to the stage where a person was going to be executed on that day, I certainly would spend a great deal of the day within myself praying, not only for the victims, but also for the defendant and hoping that, you know, we were doing the right thing and that, and that he would have, or not that we never had any females, uh, and I never had a case with a female, but hoping that, that, that they would you know, get straight before, you know, understand what they had done and be remorseful or whatever before they were executed. It, it is, it, again, it's not, it's not pretty, it's not kind, it's, it's very brutal, it, it certainly ends a life, and, and life is precious in my view. That said, I think there's three ways that the death penalty could go away, and, and, and the first one of those is some court, uh, either the high court in this state, our court or the U.S. Supreme Court could say it's unconstitutional. I think that that would, would certainly be unprecedented in, in terms of looking at, at the numbers of times that both of those courts have addressed the issue over and over again. Uh, but it's not inconceivable. I mean, like you, like, uh, I, don't, I didn't see the quote, but again, Judge Newell says he heard that Judge Scalia said he thinks there might be five votes there. I don't know if that reflects the, that there are votes to actually do away with it or if there, that reflects people, that there are people on the court who don't particularly like it. But I don't think that we as judges should be deciding cases based upon what we like and what we don't like. That's, again, that would be you know, sort of one of those things like I talked about before where we would be reacting to the way we're being perceived and trying to stay in touch with, you know, that's, we're not policymakers, in my opinion. I think we're there to interpret the law and make sure the law is being applied appropriately. Uh, the other way that the, the other two ways the death penalty could go away is the legislature could do it. Uh, um, Probably not in Texas. Well, you know, I, it, this is the thing. You know, times change and people change and people's understanding about issues change. And 
you know, from my perspective, that you know, I, there is a certain aspect of the death penalty that I hope never goes away, and that is in the sense that sometimes society owes it to its people to defend them. And sometimes there are people who are so vicious and evil that they're going to hurt or kill or maim somebody no matter what. And I think we owe a duty to those people who may be hurt or maimed to, to stop that person, to prevent. Uh, in the same way that I, as a father and a husband, would want to have the ability to prevent someone from harming my family, uh, I want that right to defend myself and my children and my wife and, and, and my colleagues. I mean, really. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> Thank it, you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I care it. about you all, too. That's uh, good. But, but so, it, you know, the legislature could, could reach a point where they decide they want to just do it, but maybe do it differently. That could happen. Uh, and even in Texas, I imagine. <clears throat> and, and then the third way that it would go away is we'd have world peace, you know, and then people just stop killing each other. And then we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the issue to wrestle with at all. But, but I do think... That what, what, to me, what's important with regard to the death penalty, again, is what I said before, from the perspective of defending the innocent, society owes a duty to, to the people to defend the innocent from people who would harm them. But, but you know, some of these other theories about uh, the reasons for, for, for the death penalty, like, you know, retribution, these are things that, that I don't have a particular affinity, affinity to as a judge, but, I mean, as a person, but as a judge... That's the law that the legislature puts in place, and I do feel compelled to, to uphold the law that the legislature writes. It's not my job to do it, it's their job to do it. I would end fourth way, and that has been working in Harris County for a long time now. Uh, Harris County, at most points in my tenure on the court, uh, with a population of one-seventh of the state, had 75% of the people on death row. And for reasons that I certainly cannot explain, Harris County, even when asking for the death penalty on every case that statutorily satisfied the well, requirements, but, and I'll they changed talk DAs, about that in a minute. but uh, they went two years and eight months without a death sentence. And when a jury finally came back with a death sentence, it was a cop killer. So I think the juries have a big role to play too in deciding whether the death penalty goes away, whether in fact or in law. Well, I didn't want to interrupt uh, Judge no, Richardson. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure what the original question <laughs> was. Is it going away? Or? Yes, the question um, is, 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 is the death penalty on the way out? I, well, I don't know if it's on the way out. I've, I've, I've tried lots as a prosecutor. I've presided over lots. And, and I think there's just a combination of factors that have evolved over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, <clears throat> You have the public very much aware that innocent people have been sent to death row. Um, you have new requirements for lawyers. It is expensive to prosecute a death penalty case. Uh, in, most, in Texas, it requires two lawyers. You get a mitigation specialist. And the judge has to sign those vouchers. It costs counties a lot of money. And many times, it's easier for them to say, we'll just plead this to a, a capital life and take it or leave it. And many defendants are more than willing to do that, or counties are just willing to waive the death penalty. And then it's just a very simple, straightforward trial. Um, you have the Supreme Court taking certain categories of people out of the equation. Juveniles that used to be executed, mentally retarded people, there could be more. Um, so there's just a variety of things that have, have changed the numbers on that. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I don't think... 
at least in the foreseeable future, text, the legislature is going to take that out of the. I think you guys have granted, I counted eight stays this year, which is unusual, right? Yes. I mean, it's usually much less than that. Is there, is there a reason for that? Were these just problematic cases? A lot of it is advances in time, yes. Okay. I think it, the primary reasons have been um, changes in science or allegations of changes of science. Because when we grant the stay, we haven't okay. actually decided the merits, right. but we get a very short window of time of usually less than a week to decide the case. And then as a matter of internal policy, we try to make sure whatever decision we reach is done quickly enough that we give the federal courts time to look at it as well. We don't want to put the defense in a situation where we deny the stay, and then they don't have time to even ask the federal courts for review because he's he's scheduled for the execution. Mm -hmm. So if we can't resolve the merits within that short window of time, then that's where the stay comes from. And then we may or may not ultimately rule with the defendant on uh, the merits. I was going to speak real quickly to defending Harris County for a minute. <laughs> uh, and, and again, you have to remember that back then life was 15 years without parole. So, for example, in one of the cases where I was the prosecutor, the man had killed two high school age kids. And you have to ask yourself, do you, I want this person to be, to be released on parole in 15 years or not, and when, when you ask that question, the answer becomes very quickly that he should be punished for this very gruesome uh, double homicide. The only other thing I wanted to say is that I'm not necessarily bothered uh, by what's going on today. I think the few numbers of prosecutions tell you that probably only the best and the brightest are being involved. You've got the best criminal defense lawyers being appointed today because there's so it's few cases. From, yeah, 25 it's different. Years ago. You've got good prosecutors who are considering mitigation and Brady right. and uh, intellectual disability. So you've got prosecutors really scrutinizing mm -hmm. whether it's the right policy decision, even if they're statutorily eligible. You've got the best and the brightest defense lawyers, you've got experts, you've got mitigation experts, you've got intellectual disability experts. All the best and the brightest people are coming in today and handling the handful of cases that are being litigated today. My problem with the death penalty, so to speak, has to do with the 260 people who are on death row already. When a lot of these cases were tried, they were tried 20 years, 30 years ago, they did not have the best and the brightest defense lawyers, many of which arguably were incompetent. <laughs> they did not have mitigation experts. They didn't have intellectual disability experts. The prosecutors were ethical, but again, back then, pre-DNA mm -hmm. in many situations, pre-understanding of science. And so when I look at these people on death row that have been there 20 and 30 years, a lot of times I just shake my head and I just think, what are we doing? How are we possibly executing this person based on the way that that trial occurred back then? And it's not to blame anybody because it was, it was before we knew a lot of the things that we know today. Yeah. So I'm not assessing blame, but I'm saying when you look at that trial compared to today's yeah. trial, you just shake your head and you just think, am I really going to let this 
sentence go forward. Right. And so you'll see me dissenting quite a bit on these executions because for me, I just, I don't think that the defendant, that the sentence should be carried out with death based on the quality of what happened back then. And so I dissent quite a bit. Um, let me ask one more question and then we'll open it up for, for questions. One of the interesting things about the court is you all are elected, you know, and uh, back in the 80s and up till 1994, it was all Democrats. And ever since then, it's pretty much been all Republicans. And the court, for the most part, you know, looks pretty much the same. It's kind of, you know, white and middle class and, and um, mostly prosecution with prosecution backgrounds, a few defense backgrounds. Should we, be have, should we have a way to bring justices, judges on our top criminal court who look more like the state of Texas? You know, I mean, uh, and I don't know how to do that. I mean, I know there are some ways where you can do an election appointment system or appointment <clears throat> election system, but I mean, is this, uh, is this something that you think about? I think about it. Um, I'm, the only, I'm the only Hispanic female on the court ever. I think I'm the second or third Hispanic ever. Um, there's obviously no African Americans on our court, and there's only been I think Judge Overstreet, two. Uh, two African Americans before. And yet, you look at the population of Texas, and we don't look like the population of Texas. We do by gender. Uh, we went from five women in 2014, and now we're four, four women. Uh, which, so we're doing great on gender. <laughs> good on the gender. <laughs> uh, and actually, we're doing okay now in terms of age because before, when I joined the court, it was a much older court, and now the 40-something-year-olds <laughs> over here have perhaps balanced us more in terms of age, which, uh, and we'll speak to computer, uh, computers <laughs> computer and things literacy, like that yes. maybe at some point later. So there's been an age change, but we are still, in my opinion, Underrepresented. I've never suggested that that courts should have a percentage or anything like mm. that. That it should exactly mirror society. But I think it's a problem when you look at society and you look at the audience. And even in our audience here, we're pretty mixed. And then you look up at the stage and you just think, well, we don't look like them. And a lot of times, it doesn't affect the decision, or most of the times, it doesn't affect the decision. Mm. Uh, I, I do think perhaps there are times that it does. I think I tend to be a little sensitive about people who can't speak English. I think that's one of my peeves, so to speak. When People who are like... Uh, well, on, when there's a trial oh, yeah, and the right. defendant doesn't speak English and perhaps there hasn't been a good enough uh, accommodation for that mm -hmm. or if somebody's deaf and there hasn't been a good enough accommodation, those are things that I think I'm sensitive to. I think the rest of the court, I'm sure, is sensitive, but it may, I don't know, maybe it affects my decision more than perhaps somebody else's. I, I can't speak to what other people's thought process is. But, um, but for me, I, I, I think the courts, all courts should do a better job of having all ethnicities and races and gender. I, I, my observation, that, though, is, is that you know, and, and I, I don't have a problem with, I don't have a problem with any makeup of the court that you want. I just want, I would just want, I mean, sorry, I'm, I'm a white middle class guy, but. What's wrong um, with you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, 
Um, thanks for joining us on Between Two Ferns. Um, so the, the, I don't have a problem with that, but I think that it's interesting that the, 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 the critique there seems more appropriate to an appointment system. Mm -hmm. We ran, I, did, I didn't right. stop anyone from running. I went out there and worked really, really hard. I know a lot of qualified people. I didn't. I didn't. I tried to talk other people, you know, to to run before I went in, <laughs> you know. Um, so I I see that as a the the problem is is more of a is more external to the court. I guess is what I would say is that there's not a lot of money in the race. It does take a lot to do it because you're running a statewide race. Um, you know, the people that have the qualifications may not feel that they can win. Um, you know, I would certainly encourage anyone that, that has a, a good background to, to throw their hat in the ring. But um, we also have a climate where, as one elected member of the Supreme Court said, I'm going to run against Medina because I can beat an Hispanic name. And he did. So a part of it, it's on the voters. Uh, I, I wasn't going to call the voters racist, but, you know. <laughs> She's retiring. <laughs> yeah, she could, you can say whatever you I, I would just say, putting that, that observation aside, I would just say that, yeah, to, to some extent, it, it really is. It's not just on the voters. It's on the candidates. People, you know, you always, if you think that the, if the voters think or people think that the court doesn't reflect them properly, they have to take ownership for that system. And that's part of the reason that I ran, because I was like, I want to be up there because I think that I could do a good job. Part of the problem, I think, is that we run partisan. And that makes us think, uh, the voters think that if I vote for this party, I'm going to get a person who thinks like this. And if I vote for this party, I'll get a person who thinks like that, which may or not be true. It would be at least a great improvement if we could run nonpartisan. Um, back in the 90s when I was running, I was at a political meeting and someone got up and started talking about a proposal for addressing that issue. And the proposal was that you would have a vetting committee uh, of equal number, an even number, say three Dems, three Republicans, and um, you would have people appointed to those ad hoc committees who actually knew something about the people that they were talking to. If it was for a civil bench, you had, would have civil lawyers from both sides and a civil judge or two on there. If it were uh, for a criminal bench, you'd have a defense attorney, a prosecutor, uh, and a criminal judge looking at these people, looking at their credentials, vetting them to see that they were qualified to do this. Some of you may remember that uh, when I reached the court in the late 90s, we had a judge whose only experience with criminal law had been as an in-house attorney at an insurance company. And he had defended himself in Florida on a charge of practicing law without a license. Other than that, he had no criminal experience, and all of a sudden, he's on the Court of Criminal Appeals. And that's because we were running partisan, and, and, and nobody expected the Republicans to sweep that year, and they did, and he went and he was not where he needed to be. <laughs> um, and so you get somebody who knows uh, whether this person has, one, a judicial temperament. There is such a thing. Uh, is it a trial bench? The temperament for a trial bench is a whole lot different than for an appellate. Some people can do both successfully. I don't want near a trial bench. So you have somebody who knows Good for you. what is required. <laughs> Then they would send a short list to the judge, to the governor, one or two, 
that it's no mulligan. I don't care if you have to hold your nose. You appoint one of these two people, and then a rich gentleman. But politics can achieve the country being good and the rest of being Can I add some? Please. So going back to the idea of uh, things that are unprecedented, I think it would be unprecedented if the people of the state of Texas decided that they wanted to give up their right to pick and choose who their judges are going to be. As I think historically speaking, this state, maybe more than some others, has, has shown itself to be one where the people are skeptical of their, of their leadership and they, they want to have a hand in choosing who those people are going to be. Um, at the same time, uh, I, I was a briefing attorney on this court, on the Court of Criminal Appeals, about 25 years ago, uh, when the court was an all-Democrat court. Who, uh, who is your judge? judge Bill White. Okay, I worked judge for. White. You mentioned right. him in the beginning right. in our introductions, and uh, they were all Democrats. And and you know, as you mentioned, you know, reputations and all that. The court had a reputation, anyhow, of having a very conservative side and a very liberal side. And so, I don't think that that you necessarily can can decide, you know. What is the, the, the what are the judges going to vote like based upon what their the party mm -hmm. that they affiliate themselves with? But but I was watching uh, I, th I think uh, PBS not too long ago and I saw an interview with Judge Scalia on the Supreme Court and somebody the the interviewer asked him a question and and I'm, forgive me for not quoting it I I'm just remembering it. They said, well, do you think the decisions of the Supreme Court are political? And he said, no. And, and my immediate reaction was, yeah, right. But then he gave a pretty good, interesting explanation uh, when he followed up, and he said, you know, what happens is they're chosen by whoever happens to be the president. And the president is a person who's a political person who has certain ideas that he's looking for in terms of the decision-making process that he chooses for a person that he puts on the Supreme Court. And, and so for, for that reason, you might see you know, people who seem to be appointed by Democrats having a certain decision-making process that they use as opposed to people who are appointed by Republicans who have a decision-making process that they use. But they're all, I think judges by and large are really all trying to do the right thing regardless of their race or their, you know, political party or all of these things that, that get us kind of worked up that we don't sometimes think we're seeing in terms of what they look like or, or what party they're with as being what we want. In my experience, judges are trying to do the right thing, and, and, and they, they come at it from different perspectives in terms of what informs their, their, the, the manner in which they make their decisions. But they're all, the ones I've met in my career are all working, it's particularly my colleagues here, are, we're working really hard to make sure we get the decisions right. And, and it's good that there are nine of us, because I can assure you there is a great diversity of thought uh, among us when we go into our, our uh, conference. Uh, I would like to make a comment about voters. Um, we, we are supposed to be choosing our leaders by voting, and yet voters don't inform themselves about judges. And the general idea seems to be, well, I'm never going into court. I don't care who the judge is. Well, your neighbor gets mad at you and sues you, and there you are in court, um, and you don't know anything about the judge. My illustration of that is that the last year that Phil Graham was on the ballot, the total vote in his race was 1.3 million. So we know at least that many people went to the polls. 
the Court of Criminal Appeals is not all that far down the ballot. We're sort of the bottom of the top of the ballot. The total vote in my race was 650,000. 50% of the people who went to the polls did not cast any vote in my race. There's good news and bad news. The good news is I don't know anything. I'm not going to vote. The bad news is I don't know anything. I'll, I'll, I'm going to defend the voters for just a minute. <laughs> I, I hope yeah. I'm going to defend the voters in this sense. In Harris County, when you go vote, there's going to be like 30 people on the ballot mm -hmm. who are running for judge. And I will admit, I've been a judge now for umpteen years, and I get to the bottom of the ballot, and I don't know mm -hmm. a couple of those people. And I'm thinking, if I don't know a couple of those, how on earth can I expect the voter to familiarize him or herself with the 30 people. And that's the problem with elected judges. I totally agree with Judge Yeary. The public wants to vote. And I hear, I see it, I hear it, I'm with you. Problem is, you don't have the, the time, no one has the time to make an intelligent vote on 30 people on the ballot. And so, and I'll bet if you asked before these people walked in here today to name one, or, and if they hadn't read the program, to name <laughs> one Court of Criminal Appeals judge, I suspect very few of the people even in here could probably yeah. name a Court of Criminal Appeals judge. And they're the ones who are here. Right. So imagine all those right. people who aren't here. Like, so I, I just think it's it, the voters want it, but as a practical reality, yeah. it's impossible. I, I get I get Google alerts from my name, and I keep <laughs> expecting the Google alert to actually be about me. And it's actually about Mr. McFeely from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, <laughs> who was an actor named David Newell. And uh, and I'm also friends with another David Newell in Newfoundland, who's awesome as well. But it's like these people, they get a I, no one knows that I exist. <laughs> So thank you all for validating me. I appreciate in, it. In 1998, the judicial ballot, not anything else, not the mayor and the, the council and the county stuff, just the judicial ballot had 72 candidates. And I agree with her. We, we, that tends me toward vetting and appointing. Not just appointing because you don't know what you're going to get if you do that, but vet the candidates by people who know the business and then have the governor appoint based on people who are qualified. But when you put 72 judges on a seat, I was the size of a bed sheet. You can't vote like that. Okay, I have totally screwed up. We've got like five minutes left. We've just, this has been a great discussion. Let's open it up uh, for, uh, hopefully we can get in a couple of questions here. And if we don't, we're not gonna get to the rest, you can come up and talk to some of these folks afterward, but please, sir. Thanks. Uh, one thing was said, I, I, I've got about 10 questions. If you all have none, I'll just go in here. Yeah, just, <laughs> just, just okay. pick, pick your number one question. Oh, no, I'm teasing. teasing. Um, one of the things that was said was about um, how the, the, the court should just apply the law as it's written. There have been plenty of times in American history, more in civil matters than criminal, I know, where the court took responsibility for leading as opposed to just applying the law. I think about loving, I think about Brown v. Board. Uh, shouldn't uh, the court also think about what should be done as opposed to just trying to limit yourself to 
what the legislature has written down in black letter law. Now, Jerry, that might be it. might be directed at me. You know, uh, th that certainly is, is, it, it's, it is precedented, right? That courts uh, sometimes see uh, something happening and they, they step in. The U.S. Supreme Court, as you mentioned, has done it uh, on, on several occasions. Uh, the question is, is that appropriate? It, you know, when, and it may be, here, here's the thing. We started off in this country with, you know, we were a very young country and, and the judiciary was a new thing and we've kind of grown up, and including, in, you know, in the 1800s, we were experiencing a growing uh, uh, time and, and, you know, we, the, you know, you had the, uh, the court addressing Jim Crow laws. I mean, they were doing things that, that needed to be addressed and the, the, the legislative branch wasn't, it didn't seem capable of, of getting around to doing those things in the, in, in the timely way that the court did. The, the, the nation is a much more grown up nation now, in, at least in my view. Uh, we, we, we understand the seriousness of a lot of the things that we do, and yet you know, we continue to, to do them, the death penalty, for example. But, but I do think that there's a, as we grow up as a nation and we understand the roles of our different uh, branches of government, that the courts really, you know, they, we shouldn't, we should understand what our role is. And the people didn't pick me, for example, to come up here and impose my will on all of you. I mean, you have people that you vote for that are close to you. They may even be your neighbors that you vote for to send to the legislature to have the law written. And you can access those people much easier than you can access the nine of us. Because even though we do live all over the state, we're you know, to get into our room and talk to us and, and say, you know, you need to do this. What, what, what I would suggest is, is that our role is a limited role, in my view. And that's just, maybe that's just my view. We, we should not, as a judiciary, come to this job with the idea that we're going to fix the problems of the world. If we do, we have so much power in the judiciary, we could do a lot of stuff. If we wanted to remake the world in the way that we wanted it to be, we could simply write it. And then it would, hopefully, if, if, if everybody went along with us like they seem to have done so far, that's the way the world would be shaped. The trouble with that is that that's tyranny. I mean, we, we become the, 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 the sort of the high nine that just decides how everything's going to be. And maybe you don't like, particularly when you talk about lifetime appointed judges, uh, much less the elected ones, we don't always like what they decide as a people. And sometimes it's not... <laughs> A situation where there's only one right answer, so that's my that's my view. I I, 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 I share think, it freely. I think that part of the problem with uh, things like Board, Brown v. Board of Education and Brady and all those other cases that are kind of like, why didn't we always have them? Is that the powers of the Supreme Court, as defined in the U.S. Constitution, are very different than the powers that we are given under the Texas Constitution? We aren't allowed to do that. Uh, we have our job, just generally, is to make sure that the law is uniform throughout the state of Texas. That's our, our jurisdiction. One more question. Judge Yeary um, mentioned that he believed, and I suspect everybody um, would agree, that public perception cannot guide your decisions, but the law and the application of it. Um, but I'm wondering to what extent you think that you have an obligation to the public to explain your opinions 
um, explain your actions or your failure to act, whether it be in granting a rehearing or um, denying a stay, and how the court can improve um, in those efforts. Well, since you mentioned my name, right. I'll just say I, I absolutely agree. I do think that, that we have an obligation to, to let you know what it is that we're thinking and to, to set it out in writing. That's, that's, that's what we do, is we set it out in writing. And, and I think when, when you look at what, what I've done and I think what the other, particularly the new judges have done since we've been here, is when, when we have a, a divergence of opinion from, from the rest, uh, then we certainly let you know in the form of a concurring or a dissenting opinion. Uh, and, and also, we, we work really hard, I think, as a court to, to come to a majority opinion that can, that can be the law, you know, that people can depend upon. And so we do work to, to, to write opinions that are going to be things that can, can last, and so that you can trust and understand that, that this is the law, what the court has said this time. Uh, we, we, we try our best to get uh, not just a majority, but large majorities behind our majority opinions. And sometimes, because of the divergence of opinion, it's difficult, um, but there you go. I would refer you to our recent opinion in Horacio, in which there were six <laughs> side opinions and a very short majority. Right. Uh, I, was gonna, I was just going to say, I think we had almost 10,000 matters last year. There was 5,570 uh, mandatory matters, writs and uh, petitions for discretionary, I'm sorry, uh, writs for habeas corpus or petitions for mandamus. And then we had 1,676 petitions for discretionary review filed. So mm. I actually think we write quite a bit. I think we explain we quite a bit and we write a lot, if, especially if you consider that in addition to what we've produced, we're voting on uh, upward, uh, around 10,000 matters. So I, I'll take a lot of criticism, but I'm not going to take criticism on us not writing enough. I think we write enough and, and then some. I right. think to the extent that it's lacking, uh, you know, you can't make everybody happy, but I, I'm going to defend what we do in yeah. terms of explaining our positions. Sometimes uh, I think we can be accused of maybe explaining too much, mm -hmm. maybe, but, but not enough. Right. I, I would else. agree like, with that. I, 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 I'm, I come from a background where I, I do feel an obligation, I definitely feel an obligation to explain. But there, I have found, uh, which I just didn't expect when I got there, before I got there, I found that there are times where I really am wrestling with, well, if I say something or if I write something extra here, am I adding anything to the jurisprudence of the state? I have made clear that I disagree with certain positions, but in the end, I'm just talking. And, and then I'm, you know, and, and I don't, I, I think that sometimes I think the jurisprudence is better benefited by my silence rather than me getting up and writing a big, long discussion about what I think the law is coming from the Oracle at Delphi. I just don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, uh, I, I sometimes think that that might be a disservice. But it's a tough line because I feel like on some situations, I'm like, is this important? Is my view, if I, if, is my view of this case um, something new and something significant that I think would benefit people, then I will feel that I need to do it. But if I feel that pretty much everyone has already said what needs to be said, like in Marasio, with all the side opinions, I'm not gonna add to the death of trees, you know? <laughs> so, the tree holocaust. All right, that is it. Thank you so much for coming out. This is a great discussion. Thank you guys. Thank you audience for coming out. Thank you. Thank right. you. Good to good. meet you. Yeah.